the worst thing to do with a period movie that has contemporary relevance is is to not overlay it with contemporary gloss or spin. We didn't seek to fetishize the 60s. I made sure that everything looked like we were there. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, a pregnant woman finds herself in a dire situation in director Phyllis Nagy's drama, called Jane. Set in Chicago in 1968, the film follows Joy, a conservative housewife and mother who is faced with a devastating diagnosis when her second pregnancy leads to a life-threatening heart condition. Unable to get an exemption for a legal abortion, she turns to a clandestine group of women for help. Call Jane is Nagy's feature directorial debut. Her other directorial credit is the movie for television, Mrs. Harris. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Nagy spoke with director Sarah Perosic about filming Call Jane. Listen on for their spoiler-filled conversation. So I just want to say before I get to any questions or anything, what an incredible film, what a moving film. Um, it was really, uh, it was a real, you know, deeply moving and your vision on the screen, I think honors a lot of women's experiences. So thank you. Oh, thank you for saying that, really. I'm getting choked up. <laughs> I guess let's start at the beginning, and I'd love to ask you how this script came to you. I know you're also a writer. For people who don't know, Phyllis wrote uh, Carol, the Todd Haynes movie, which was incredible. Um, yeah, let's talk about the script a little. Yeah, um, I guess around three years ago, maybe a little more, um, Robbie Brenner, who is the lead producer on, on this film, sent me the script in one of its, it was a blacklist script. And um, Robbie's company picked it up uh, in the wake of that placement. And she just really loved the story of the Janes, which I, I'm ashamed to say, I had no idea who they were when I read the script. Never heard of them. And then everyone else I talked to had never heard of them either. And I thought, well, we don't know enough about our heroes, do we? <laughs> We're not taught about people like this. I just couldn't believe it was real. Mm -hmm. I was like, God. And such a timely film. It's crazy, right? Yeah. There are things in the scripts like, come on, that didn't happen. And it did. They, it did. Everything in the script in one way or another happened uh, over the course of um, the Janes mm -hmm. being organized and helping women. Mm -hmm. I, I, what I was really impressed with was the tone of the film, how your DP, Greta, and your art department folks and your um, makeup people, you were just saying that the makeup was completely accurate on all the Janes um, and th the setting being on location in Connecticut, Hartford. Um, it created such a wonderful atmosphere, but it was that gilded 
cage of privilege that I thought was really well uh, illustrated in the film that, you know, Elizabeth, you showed, you know, she was such a, a prize in a way, but then she was not allowed a voice. And um, yeah, maybe talk a little bit about, I mean, did you work with the script? Did you change things? Did you emphasize things? Oh, sure. We all do. I mean, what, what interested me was the transaction and negotiation of everything that goes on in this. So my work centered around what I call those building block scenes, mm -hmm. the opening, um, which is mm -hmm. a, a, a negotiation through two different worlds, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, the scenes in which the, the detective scene, that long sequence at the end, mm -hmm. Um, Dean, Dr. Dean and, mm. and Sigourney, Virginia, and then Dean and um, Joy mm -hmm. when she says, okay, now you're going to do this for me. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like that. Everything that happens in this narrative happens as a result of negotiation. Mm -hmm. and, and Yeah. As a writer, you're, you know, it's all cause and effect. It's all reversals. And I felt like you really, uh, that worked so beautifully. I mean, from the opening scene, where she was walking in, I, I could relax. I knew I was in great hands, you know? Didn't everyone else feel like that? I felt like, oh, I'm going to watch a movie now. This is great. seen us on the day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was fantastic. And I know you shared with me and were allowed to say this was only $8 million, the budget, to do a period film with a large, substantial cost. You know, it was really impressive what you guys achieved. And the, you know, for example, the 1968 uh, riots, quote unquote, where the students were attacked by the police there, um, I thought, how are they going to do this? Are we going to have to spend all our capital on that scene? And it was such a clever uh, economic way of telling that story. Yeah, well, I mean, I wish we had been able to. In the script, of course, you're not fettered you know, um, and there was a huge number of extras and joy and uh, will navigating their way through the crowd. And I thought, how are we going to do this? Well, we couldn't. And so when I learned the number of extras we could have for that scene, they all became police in a line. And we had about 10 people like down the street so that we can create the looming um, the little right. shadows. Yeah. I mean, restrictions really do make for sometimes interesting choices. So it was either that or giving up shooting on Super 16, which um, I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's, yeah, I spoke with uh, your DP earlier today and she says hi. And she was uh, very happy to work on this film and, and thrilled when you said, I want to shoot this on film. Did, how, how did that work with the producers? Was everyone down for that? Did you have to negotiate to make that happen? Yeah, no, no nobody was down for that. Um, uh, <laughs> I think, but, but I didn't know why, right? Now, I'd made a film... Um, for HBO years before, which was shot on 35 millimeter and with one camera. So, you know, this is the way that, as far as I was concerned, was what everybody did. <laughs> um, but my producer said, I haven't shot a film on film in 20 years, and I have not shot with less than two cameras. And I said, holy shit, <laughs> okay. Mm -hmm. um, we're going to have to prove to you that using Super 16 in this case, will either save you money or add very little to 
what you would be spending otherwise on all this other stuff. Mm-hmm. And we did also, I didn't shoot that much. We shot on just under 60,000 feet of film. Mm. Um, because we planned and planned and planned and shot listed and, you know, things change because when you obviously you walk onto a set and it doesn't look like what what you thought it would look mm-hmm. like. But more or less, we were just prepared. We laid out all the numbers. And um, it really wasn't that much more. I think it cost COVID because we shot this. Um, That's tough. Yeah, yeah, lots of money goes for With COVID. masks, shields. I, don't, I was wearing so many things on my face that I couldn't see through the camera. <laughs> it's like, wow. But... Um, that added more to the budget mm-hmm. than than the film did. That's so right? frustrating. Yeah, um, the, it was very beautiful, though. I think that that you know, not only the 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 mise en scène, how you structured the scenes was amazing, but then you made choices, and I could really feel them, almost like a '60s movie, and then going into the '70s with a very flat frame and then some of the some of the scenes you really spent your capital on coverage but there were the more intimate like the grueling abortion scene it felt so didn't we all feel like we were there like I think this is such a powerful tool to uh just really share that people can see now in this time it's it's not a a decision taken lightly and it's very painful emotionally and physically um yeah just talk about how you covered that scene well that was the only set we built we built one set. It was the the abortion room, the bathroom, and that hallway because I knew that we would never find, you know, an apartment mm-hmm. in, in Hartford, Connecticut, mm-hmm. that we could feel, that the actors could feel positively comfortable in mm-hmm. with sounds of life going on everywhere and people coming and going. You can't control mm-hmm. that environment. And so we spent whatever set budget we had in building that. And yes, there's, that has the most setups of any scene except the detective scene. Another great scene. Which had quite a few setups, but those were different sizes of close-ups and things that were more subtle, I suppose, than, than the uh, procedure scene, which we both knew, Elizabeth and I. Elizabeth had been attached to this movie when I came and luckily I knew her. I'd known her for some years. And it was a gift to be able to actually plan some work on making sure that the piece really suited the actor that I knew, you know, instead of trying to fight. I, I, I would see some of my director friends kind of go, well, why, why can't they do this? And the reason is because they can't, you know, <laughs> people do have their gifts. Right. So it was great that we were able to talk through a lot of that prior to getting to Connecticut. I mean, I don't know what she was using in those scenes, but I felt right there with her. She was phenomenal. And that was one of my questions was, how is it directing a director? Because as you know, Elizabeth has helmed a few movies Mm -hmm. and is a real talent in that arena as well. Well, she, you know, she does get asked that question, and, and now I know what her, the answer is. I'll give you her answer, which is, I mean, I never, she never um, tried to direct this. But it's very simple. She chooses her acting <clears throat> jobs based on the fact that she just wants to act. Joy was enough for her. I think it was one of those roles that, you know, she hadn't been 
doing a lead for a while, I think. She'd been doing those, um, you know, great supporting roles and things that she was directing or just acting in. But this was tough. This was tough for her. She was there every single day, all day long. I mean, she must have done an enormous amount of preparation just to get into the era, get into the whole costuming, just the the physical mannerisms. I felt really like I was transported to the 1960s. Well, we also had, I mean, we did talk about that and how the worst thing to do with a period movie that has contemporary relevance, because, of course, we knew what was happening. I didn't know it would happen this quickly, but sure. Um, is is to not overlay it with contemporary gloss or spin. We didn't seek to fetishize the 60s. I made sure that everything looked like we were there or could be there instead of, you know, the, the neon pops of color and things like that that certainly I know my parents didn't have, even looking at old, you know, photos. And I had Julie Weiss with whom I'd worked on, Mrs. Harris. I mean, she's a genius and probably had half those things in her closet, Mm -hmm. those costumes. Um, And Julie was there, Mm -hmm. there during the protests. Sigourney was there. We had a wealth of women, and it was a lot of women who worked on this. Mm -hmm. Um, I hired female heads of department when I could. And it was not for lack of trying in every other... uh, I think my editor, whom I love, Peter McNulty, um, I think is the only male head of department, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) But, I mean, he's honorary for me. You know, he's like, Mm -hmm. he's a great guy. Um, But we did. We, we, We hired a group of people for whom this meant... A lot, mm-hmm. and and everyone who worked on this, mm-hmm. with the exception of probably someone in a distant office, mm-hmm. we all knew each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that really shone through in the film. Um, and you know, one thing that I loved, I want to talk about the detective scene again, but first, the ensemble scenes. Ensemble scenes are so hard to shoot, so a bit like a dinner party, so hard to direct. Um, can you talk about your rehearsal process with the Janes? Sure. I mean, the Janes also were the most difficult group to put together because it really was like casting a dinner party and like, who do you want sitting next to whom? And Wumi was the first you know, peace to come. She was the only person I think I ever considered for that role, mm-hmm. really. And I was glad that she was available and mm-hmm. willing. But then the four, the, the other Janes, Aida Totoro, um, I just thought, I remember saying to to one of the, oh, my first AD, you know, and Aida Totoro, and he said, oh, God, Janice from the surprise. <laughs> it's like, yeah, um, don't worry, Dan, she's not bringing her gun with her. <laughs> yeah. yeah. She transformed herself. I didn't realize until the credits it was her. She was fantastic. Yeah. But she, she had, she had a way about her. I've known nuns and she was, mm-hmm. I felt she was that nun. Yeah. All of them. Rebecca Henderson, Evangeline Young, who plays Maeve, who, mm-hmm. who has the long red hair, Christina Harrison, who plays the funny one, mm-hmm. little blonde, Sigourney's girlfriend. It's subtle, but it's there. Yeah, right? no, it's there. It's great. Um, um, and, and they were all, and even the extra Janes who were there like in the background painting her house and doing odd jobs, they were all local Hartford businesswomen and professionals 
doctors, lawyers, people who brought stories with them. Amazing. About their time. And everyone right. was very invested. Right. But the, the principal Janes I just threw together in mm -hmm. the week before we started shooting. That's, you know, what how much time we had for mm -hmm. rehearsal. But I wanted rehearsal. Mm -hmm. And we just sat around and talked, mm -hmm. gabbed, argued. They did what they do, mm -hmm. actually. And Greta and I knew already we had Sigourney for nine days, I think. Mm -hmm. And so we had to shoot those Jane's scenes in a very economical way. Sure. So we did um, moves and counter moves with Steadicam. Mm -hmm. I just said, let's just do this. Mm -hmm. Keep it moving. Well, it felt Keep almost it like moving. you were a character within the scene yeah. that you'd yeah. wandered in and you were part of that yeah. event. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. And, and that, we needed to do that mm -hmm. because we wouldn't have made our days, quite mm -hmm. frankly. Mm -hmm. But it also worked. Mm -hmm. so. No, it really did. And I loved that the sort of loose visual storytelling there was very different from the more stylized, yeah. structured storytelling. And that you really saw with her and her husband because yeah. he was more, it was like this patriarchal sort of box that he had her in. And a lot of the, the images were like this box. Yeah. It was very contained He's about the nicest. I'm sure he is. <laughs> well, for him to accept the role, he'd have to be because he he yeah. wasn't always painted in the best light. Well, I mean, there, he's also not centered. Mm -hmm. Like a, a, the guys just are not centered. Mm -hmm. Even Doctor Dean, mm -hmm. who who is, I mean, there's that's Corey Michael Smith, amazing role. Corey and John are Carol alums, so. Mm -hmm. You know, that was that was a neat family reunion mm -hmm. of sorts. And they were completely not vain. Mm -hmm. You know, I said to Corey, here's a picture of a haircut I want you to have. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> um, but it was actually Brian Jones's haircut. Yeah, it was very hip at the time. Yeah, but yeah, it looked like I thought it might look on Corey. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. It was yeah. fantastic. Yeah, no, the, the, and the, the evolution of each character, their arcs was fantastic also. And, you know, you talk about the daughter a little bit mm -hmm. because she had to age, obviously, five years and go from a child to a young woman. But she did a great job with that. No, she's a really good actress, little mm -hmm. good. And I don't know that she's going to continue being an actress because she has ambitions to write and direct herself. Mm. She's very smart. She went off to do the Wes Anderson movie after, mm. after Call Jane, mm. Asteroid City. Mm. But Grace, that took a long time to cast because I did not want the pretty little blonde girl the cutesy, yeah. with the one tear coming down the mm. cheek. And <laughs> I saw lots of great auditions that, wow, technically, mm -hmm. but didn't seem like the right thing. Mm. She had a lot of humanity. I think one of the writers said, oh, my, my manager has this kid and would you look at the tape? And I thought, oh God, okay. <laughs> and there she was like the best thing I'd seen just right off. And, and she was, she has that about her eyes. She's mm -hmm. an old soul. Mm -hmm. And also I thought kind of looked like she might come from Chris. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. So it's, She's just the whole package. Yes, she very much took off yeah. to her dad, yeah. yeah. I think Elia Kazan said um, uh, directing is in the casting. Oh, God, yes, and casting everyone, not mm -hmm. just your cast, but mm -hmm. your your heads of department and your, your AD team. Mm -hmm. and all. I mean, it was we could not have... Talk about your AD team. So few directors doing it's great because we're oh, in the guild here. I thought everybody would talk about their ADs. <laughs> okay, well... 
Dan Dan Ringy, who was a first AD, had worked with Robbie mm-hmm. Brenner on two other movies. I can't remember. And I remember when we lost the female at AD that we were going for, she said, he's such a nice guy. Mm. And I said, well, that's important to me. Let mm-hmm. me talk to him. I don't want some son of a bitch who's mm-hmm. going to just like everyone. make everybody's life miserable. Mm-hmm. I've certainly seen that on any number of sets, right? And he was so nice and so, uh, that I said to him, are you sure that you can <laughs> get, <laughs> do this. get everybody on, you know, because I, nice? yeah. I, am, I am Mr. Uh, soft-spoken, yeah. I'm never going to yell, I'm never going to do anything like that, so sometimes you're probably going to have to. Mm-hmm. And he did, and he assembled his team, Stevie, second, and Tony, second, second, and uh, they'd all been working together for a while, so they had a shorthand, which I kept kind of observing. Mm-hmm. Um, they were Dan was particularly good with the camera, and the gaffers and and I think well, God, you need to do that most of all mm-hmm. and everyone was just in a good mood mm-hmm. except when some producer or other would turn up on set and say are you making <laughs> does she have enough coverage and Dan would have to come and say are you gonna are you gonna have to no god damn it <laughs> we I have enough coverage on, I remember being on set once and a producer came and, and told me whispered in my ear and said tell him to yell <laughs> yeah I mean we had that we, we we had I this movie was financed almost entirely through mm, private equity mm-hmm. so we didn't have a studio that was great mm-hmm. um, but we did have a bunch of investors and we did have a mm. bunch of quirky Mm-hmm. Like people who I put in the movie for mm-hmm. one or two lines to, I mean, it all worked out, but there were moments when, when I had to fudge a shot mm-hmm. to make sure that someone was being covered. Right. Yeah, I noticed how many producers you had in your credits. And I thought, oh, it's like when you watch the indie movies from Europe, it's always like 20 different producers because right. you have to cobble together your money. Well, we had three producers. The rest, I think, you've, I, I've never met them or I've mm. met one or two. They were investors. But mm. as I understand it, that's what happens today. You, mm-hmm. you get a producing credit. And certainly, thank God for those people. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we, we, we also, fortunately, as the budget... I knew that when I was approached, um, it was more like six million. And mm. I remember saying, never, mm. n- never, never, maybe eight. Mm. And so we kept needing to Get a raise money, a little right. more money. And um, luckily, this sold, um, the, the, the uh, protagonist mm. sold worldwide. Mm-hmm. And it's it's in surprising places. No, exactly. We were just me. saying it was. I just saw it was. It's being distributed in China and Russia, of all places. But um, and UK just got picked up. Well, and, the UK is being released yeah. the week after we yeah we release here. And what's your release date here? Friday, October twenty eighth. Tell everyone to go see it. Yeah. <laughs> um, should we take some questions from the audience? Sure. I might have some more, but um, is anyone burning to ask anything? Yes, Aneta. Let me just repeat that for the audience. So Aneta's asking, uh, are the things that are true in the film, what are they but unbelievable? Am I saying that right? Yeah, the unbelievable but true things. What's unbelievable to me that a bunch of women learned how to do this themselves. And I mean, I personally could not. 
I'm sure, do that. I remember asking Elizabeth if she could, and she said, yep. <laughs> I thought, yeah, great. Um, and so that was one thing. Um, I found it sort of unbelievable that they didn't have a problem with over 11,000, somewhere between 11,000 and 12,000 women. And that is absolutely true. Unbelievable. And that's just one city in America yeah. over a few years. It's, right. Uh, yeah. And it's shocking. It's really shocking and that we're finding ourselves here again. But that's another conversation. Uh, does anyone else have a question? So were the Janes only in Stanford? Can, oh, they were in Chicago, actually. Stanford was the lo shooting location, but Chicago was the film, yeah. But were they only in Chicago or were they national? Yeah, no, they weren't national. But um, they were I'm not. sure they, no, they, I'm sure they serviced many women who were coming maybe from other places. Um, it was a small operation because they really did have to charge people. The $600 is not an incorrect number. But when women were allowed to pay what they could, when they themselves were performing the, the procedure, it expanded. And so they had way more diverse uh, clientele and also membership because that's how people became members. It was like one of those you go through it. And Is it true that they literally had like paste, wheat paste things on bus stops? Yeah, they mostly advertised like, remember those ads in the Village Voice? Sometimes like that's literally what they did. Those ads are exactly what they would advertise and put out there. Yeah, and I'm sure women traveled from hundreds of miles away um, to go to Chicago to get the procedure. Does anyone else have a question? Oh, there's one at the back there. So the question is a big compliment about the opening of the film and the, the mise-en-scene and everything. Um, the question is the, the songs were all popular choices, um, popular music of the era, but with different performances. And this gentleman's asking if it was a budgetary constraint, why was that? I think the, a lot of the performers for those songs are well known, but most of it is deep cuts from you know, the Nancy Sinatra song is not so well known. The Janicean song is not one of her hits. What I said to the music super, um, there were two things. One, I had to have Sister Ray that I put into the script, the song she dances to with her daughter. And we had to write letters to, you know, John Cale and whoever was alive saying why we needed this. And, um, I understand that song's never been used in a movie, which surprised me. It's such a great song. Um, but the others, I said, the directive was, here is what we need. These mostly women of the 60s and early 70s who have more or less been forgotten, let's remind people what they did. So the Malvina Reynolds tune, which is the one where she's, you know, what's going on down there. And all of those folk women, absolutely pur purposeful choices. And then, like, I found that Jennifer Warren's version of um, the flesh failures, Let the Sunshine In, on YouTube. They hadn't even cut a master. Willie Udell is an absolutely brilliant music super, and she got all of that stuff for us for a song. So, yeah, thank you for noticing. Mm. And, um, yeah. 
Well, I think that's a great question to end on because it wraps it all up, the sound, the music, everything. It's a perfect uh, a little Fabergé egg of a movie, if you'll accept that. Sure. Thank you. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for coming out. And thank you, Phyllis, especially. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 